Hello and welcome to Obvious Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher, and you can help support the podcast through Patreon. He was known as the Wizard of Ooze, a moderate or conservative Republican, depending on when he was asked and who was doing the asking, and both a partisan firebrand and master of consensus, a man who tried to pass the constitutional amendments to allow prayer in school, and the man responsible for breaking the Southern filibuster to pass the Civil Rights Act. So who and what was Everett McKinley Dirksen, the Senate Minority Leader who made such an impact on history? What did he stand and fight for? And what is his legacy for us today? With me to discuss these questions is Tiffany White, Executive Director of the Dirksen Congressional Center. Tiffany, welcome. Thanks for having me, Avi. My pleasure. So who was Everett Dirksen before he entered Congress and how and why did he decide to enter Congress as a Republican during the party's absolute nadir in the mid-1930s when they seemed to be on the verge of extinction? Well, Everett Dirksen was born in 1896 to first-generation German immigrants in the small Midwestern town of Pekin, Illinois. And his parents, given their religious, agrarian, and family-oriented heritage, in addition to just the context of the age in which they lived, were very conservative. Uh, Central Illinois, by the way, also simply has a long history of identifying with the Republican Party, in part due to Abraham Lincoln's legacy there. Lincoln spent most of his life in and around Springfield, Illinois, and as a lawyer, he also spent a decent amount of time in Pekin due to it being the county seat where the courthouse is located. And so, you know, Dirksen would have grown up during a time where his elders actually remembered Abraham Lincoln being alive, would have interacted with him. And um, as a result, Dirksen ended up idolizing him and saw in some ways his career path running parallel uh, to that of Lincoln's. Um, but the other thing, too, is that Dirksen's middle name, McKinley, is the namesake of the former Republican president, William McKinley, uh, who Dirksen's father greatly admired. And um, you know, so Dirksen was a conservative for cultural reasons, um, including the ones that I listed above, but I think he really did believe deeply in the core philosophy of conservatism. And so um, despite being a member of the party with absolutely no power in the 1930s when he first entered Congress, Dirksen was dedicated then uh, to the party and, um, you know, until the day that he died. Um, but more importantly, he was dedicated to the principles that he felt that that party should exalt. Um, something that I think that you will hear resonate through um, my answers to questions in the rest of this interview is that Dirksen's allegiance was to his principles first and his party second. He maintained uh just an incredible amount of flexibility um, throughout his career. And it allowed him to, you know, at various times uh, identify with the more conservative faction or the more liberal faction of the Republican Party, but then to also bring um, some members of the conservative wing of the Democratic Party uh, to his cause as well. Um, some people would think that that was um, that flexibility um, and that inconsistency was a liability, but I think in the long run, it turned out to be his greatest asset. So 
Everett Dirksen enters Congress in 1932, one of the country's darkest years. Uh, he is part of, as you said, a House caucus with practically no power and no influence. And it seems like the Democrats have all the answers, or they have different clashing answers, but the Republicans have no idea what to do and how to respond. How does Dirksen play a part in his party's efforts to try and recover and bounce back and think, okay, well, what do we stand for now? How do we apply the philosophy of our party to this new, extremely um, difficult situation? Yeah. So 1933 is the year that Dirksen um, officially becomes a member of the House of Representatives and uh, the year that FDR was inaugurated as the President of the United States. And um, you're right, House Republicans held less than one third of the 435 seats that year. But Dirksen optimistically believed that there must be some meaningful role in the minority, no matter how small. And so he embarks on an endeavor to uh, study the rules, to study his colleagues, and to really master the amendment process. Um, the amendment process would ultimately become Dirksen's signature method of influencing legislation and lawmaking as a member of the minority party, um, which is where he's at for most of his career. And he did that successfully. He also employed the power of oratory and persuasion uh, in floor debates, which I do think on some small scale, even in those early years, had an impact. It may not have made a difference on whether or not a piece of legislation became law, but it did influence the narrative. And I think that that's something that can certainly start to make a difference over time. But regarding the New Deal in particular, um, and those you know, liberal remedies to the issues that um, our country was facing. As a freshman member of Congress, I simply don't think that he was um, in a strategic party mindset uh, about how the Republican caucus as a whole might handle the onslaught of sweeping new programs. But as an individual legislator, Dirksen certainly uh, identified with that overall conservative horror over um, the New Deal programs and uh, FDR's domestic policy leanings overall. However, his approach to the New Deal was to be thoughtful and pragmatic rather than to take that strict um, oppositionist party line stance and, you know, just vote against every law under the program affiliation with it and with FDR. Um, and so, uh, it's also important to remember that FDR was not all that unpopular, even in the conservative 16th Congressional District of Illinois. And I think that that was in the back of Dirksen's mind as well. But as early as the 1930s, here we see Dirksen exercising some of that legislative flexibility and pragmatism. And he ended up actually voting for some of the New Deal legislation, such as the Social Security Act of 1935, the Housing Act, and uh, the National Labor Relations Act. And so I think that that really made him an outlier in the party, even at that time. One might even argue that these early opportunities to practice independence and flexibility helped him shape the skills and the reputation that he'd need to be a leader of the Republican Party uh, later on 
where he worked across the aisle with his political opponents to get things accomplished as a senator in the 50s and the 60s. Okay. Um, so obviously he had relatively little influence uh, as a freshman senator. Uh, sorry, as a freshman congressman. But um, by 1938, uh, 1940, 1942, uh, the Democratic majority has shrunk to the point that there emerged what came to be called the conservative coalition, whereby Republicans worked with more conservative Democrats to, if not kill, then at least stymie and substantially amend many pieces of legislation afterward. Uh, what role, if any, did Dirksen play, having no, no longer being a freshman anymore, but now being an experienced man of the game? Well, we're talking about mid 40s late 40s remind me mid, again mid 40s mid 1940s yeah yeah i think that um well this was an interesting time uh as well because it marks the beginning of the war um you know dirksen has been in congress for quite some time now he has earned uh, i think a really strong reputation uh, as a member of the House of Representatives, and uh, you definitely see his power start to uh, accumulate. He's found his stride. He has created uh, a strong reputation both within his party and across the aisle. And again, he leaned heavily on his aptitude to be a parliamentarian, to understand the rules. And he was, you know, up at 5.30 every day in his office on Capitol Hill before most of his colleagues, and he studied the legislative process. And by this point, to every piece of legislation, there was a Dirksen amendment. And so this was his way of saying, um, look, I can't stop every piece of legislation that I don't like, but what I can do is use the process to make it a little more palatable for me and my Republican colleagues. And he he led the way in that effort, and um, you know that became a major part of his reputation. He, of course, um, I shouldn't say of course because maybe this is not well known, but Dirksen actually leaves Congress for a short time uh, after 1947. He's experiencing uh, a malady in his eyesight and decides to not run for re-election. These maladies somewhat miraculously resolve themselves um, at this time, and so he steps away from the House of Representatives, but then comes back in 1950 to run for the U.S. Senate. So speaking of the same period, um, by now, the Republican lead, the Republican Party has regained some of its strength. It's regained some of its strength both in both in Congress and in state offices. And two major leaders now emerge as commanders of wings of the Republican Party. One is New York Governor Thomas Dewey, uh, who ran for president in 1944 and 1948, who was known as a much more moderate, uh, sometimes liberal uh, candidate. And the other was Senator Robert Taft, who was basically the unofficial leader of the G Republican Senate caucus um, pretty much from the mid-1940s until his death in 1953, and who also made a number of attempts to run for, but he lost the nomination for president. Where did Dirksen, who was becoming an ever senior leader, and he indeed won the election, in 19, uh, the election to Senate in 1950, where did he see himself uh, in the great clash between these two leaders? 
Well, it sort of depends on what year it was. So uh, he he aligned himself with both men, but at slightly different times. So in 1948, uh, Dirksen was firmly behind Dewey and uh, even fought strategically against other Republican leaders in Illinois, like Colonel Robert, Robert McCormick, who owned the Chicago Tribune uh, and Governor Green. He fought against them for control of the state's delegation at the National Convention. And you know, again, Dirksen's leaving the House of Representatives at this time, um, but he's gotten better from his illness and um, he knew that supporting Dewey could help advance his political career that just at this time didn't seem to be quite over. Um, you know, there were rumors that Dewey might select him as uh, a running mate or as a member of the cabinet or, you know, at the very least, uh, you know, Dirksen might be able to chair the Republican National Committee. Um, and this is not to say that his support for Dewey was merely transactional and opportunistic. Uh, I do think that he aligned with Dewey philosophically at this point, um, but certainly there were a lot of elements um, at play here. It's also worth setting the stage for the rest of the narrative to say that during the the late 30s and the late 40s to early 50s, Dirksen seems to move back and forth between the isolationist camp and the internationalist camp. This is a conflict that I think is internal for him. And I think that he genuinely changes his mind about this issue a number of times. So in 19, in 1948, he had started to move away from his traditional isolationist bent and more into the internationalist bent. And I think that World War II plays a part in this. But then after the war, you know, he starts to vacillate back towards his original um, isolationist um, leanings. Interestingly, in 1950, when Dirksen is running for the U.S. Senate, these warring, warring factions uh, of the Republican Party, particularly within the Illinois delegation, start to come together around Dirksen. And it was Senator Taft who advises Colonel McCormick that Dirksen is needed in the U.S. Senate at this time. Um, and so having made peace with the Taft wing of the Senate, uh, it was Taft who Dirksen then supported for the Republican nomination in 1952. And Dirksen even spoke on behalf of or in support of Taft at the Republican National Convention. You can watch this speech on YouTube. It's one of the few that uh, exists online uh, of Dirksen's oratory from start to finish. And um, it was highly controversial. Uh, Dirksen was a little too passionate, a little too flagrant. He even criticized Dewey directly for his failures four years ago. And Dewey, of course, is in the audience. And um, anyway, it was a very important speech for Dirksen that ended up being kind of a mess for him. Uh, it riled the crowd up. It um, you know created some division. And you can see and hear in the video things starting to get out of control for a while. 
Um, of course, Eisenhower ended up receiving the nomination uh, at that time and reportedly Taft reached out to Eisenhower once he had won the nomination and encouraged him to consider Dirksen to be his running mate. Um, and that was, of course, simply out of the question. Eisenhower and Dewey were aligned and um, hurt feelings over what happened at the convention were, were fresh. Um, so that's kind of the story between uh, Dirksen's uh, vacillating companionship and commitment to both Dewey uh, and Taft. That's a, that would have been a fascinating alternative history. Um, so, yes. <laughs> yeah. So Eisenhower wins the nomination and he wins the election uh, and yes. Taft dies of cancer in 1953, which leaves Dirksen as, if not minority, official minority leader just yet, nevertheless, one of the most influential senators in the Republican caucus for most of Eisenhower's term. Uh, did they manage to patch things up? They absolutely did, um, although not right away. Uh, you know, it was Taft that really made amends with Eisenhower first. Um, you know, things were completely smoothed out, it seemed, between them by late 1952, early 1953. But Luke, uh, Dirksen was still lukewarm. Um, you know, remember, a bit of an independent thinker and, um, you know, didn't always just jump right onto um, the bandwagon. And at this point in time, he's still feeling um, I think more aligned uh, and ingratiated towards the more conservative faction uh, of his party instead of um, the more modern, moderate faction that was emerging and uh, that had just taken over the White House. But here again comes the strength of Dirksen's flexibility. For the most part, Dirksen finds ways to stand firm on his conservative principles without entirely shutting out his opponents on either side of the vast political spectrum. And he always seems to maintain mixed commitments, and he tended to always move forward with the times eventually. Eisenhower, of course, also wanted and needed Dirksen on his side, um, particularly after Taft's death in 1953. And so it's Eisenhower who starts really going out of his way to build bridges uh, between the two of them. And he was ultimately successful in that. Um, Dirksen even found his way back to that more internationalist swing of the Republican Party by the mid-1950s, particularly after uh, a tour in Asia uh, where he's, as a member of Congress, studying the effects of U.S. foreign aid. And that really helped his relationship with Eisenhower, too. And so towards 1956, he's almost fully aligned with Eisenhower politically. And it was all made easier by the fact that they had developed a true and genuine friendship as well. Um, and so towards the end, he and Eisenhower were allies and it was Dirksen who Eisenhower came to depend upon as a conduit between the White House and the legislature. Okay, so Eisenhower's presidential term comes to an end. 
uh, and his actual vice president does not win the presidential election in 1960. Instead, a Democrat comes in, giving the Democrats once again complete united government. Uh, how does Dirksen absorb this new uh, reality? Is he overjoyed? Is he depressed? Is he, okay, I'll work with him like I worked with Truman and FDR to the extent that they could? Yeah, well, you know, John F. Kennedy and Everett Dirksen did not agree on much when it came to policy, particularly domestic policy. But one of Dirksen's strengths is that he really believed the best in everybody. I think that he was willing to work with anyone. He was an optimist. Uh, he believed in the power of persuasion and compromise. And um, you see this between even, even him and JFK. Uh, again, despite their policy differences, they end up working together quite closely on uh, a number of issues, not the least of which is the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963. Um, there's a great story about uh, Kennedy actually being in Illinois campaigning for Dirksen's Democratic opponent, Sid Yates, when he gets the call about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and look, Kennedy was just being a good party stalwart. Um, I, I don't know that he ever really um, wanted Yates to beat Dirksen, but he was um, going on the camp campaign trail for him. And uh, he gets called away back to Washington, D.C. and immediately calls up all the party leadership, including Dirksen. And, you know, they joke about him coming from the Yates campaign. And they just had this great rapport um, that was born out of mutual respect. And that mutual respect seemed to always take place at Dirksen's insistence. It was the culture that he cultivated um, between himself and all of the presidents. So yes, he had a good relationship with JFK, just like he did with the other presidents. And um, the fact that JFK was a Democrat with different priorities um, didn't seem to, to slow him down. Dirksen did what he knew that he needed to do. He just changed the strategy. Speaking of close relationships, uh, I run into this all the time whenever I read about the period that Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen were like buddy buddies. They they talked all the time uh, over the phone. They talked all the time over the phone over the most pressing matters of national security and issues. And I would I would like to like learn a little bit more about that. Like how did because this sounds a lot closer than any other any other relationship he had across the aisle. How did that start? How did that develop? Well, Dirksen's relationship with LBJ began to flourish during their time together in the U.S. Senate, and um, their collegiality and their working relationship intensified uh, while they both served as the leaders of their respective parties. Um, and again, Dirksen got along well with LBJ because he made it his business to get along well with everyone, quite honestly. And both men knew in their respective times how important it was uh, to have an ally in each other. Um, and they didn't allow policy disagreements to get in the way of that. Dirksen didn't make it difficult on leaders like LBJ either. Um, he was friendly. 
and he was kind and he was optimistic. He respected his political opponents. Um, and he was not shy about expressing that respect, both privately and publicly. Um, that being said, Dirksen and LBJ could not have possessed more opposing leadership styles. Dirksen would describe his own leadership style by saying that the oil can is mightier than the sword, or alternatively, um, the oil can is um, more effective than the baseball bat. Dirksen was the oil can guy, and LBJ was the baseball bat guy. And Dirksen would talk openly about these differences, and in a mat in a manner that I think was sometimes a bit critical of Johnson. But at the end of the day, when you read the private correspondence between Dirksen and LBJ, and when you see the photographs of these two men interacting, they are saturated in genuine mutual affection. So their friendship was real. And that really mattered to the policy priorities that they worked together to advance. Excellent. Speaking of oil can work better than the baseball bat, uh, we live in an era where it seems like members of both parties uh, work hard as hard as possible to send out, I guess, viral videos to show how stupid the other guys are. Um, I noticed, uh, and I really wish they were all online, but I noticed that uh, there are some videos of Edward Dirksen. He apparently had the thing, he had two things. One, he had a Your Senator Speaks series where he would send out videos explaining in his own very calm, very theatrical style, all sorts of issues of the day. And second of all, he also had a, famously had what was called the Gavin Charlie Show, where he, together with uh, House Minority Leader uh, Charles Halleck, would have a, a, a press conference every, uh, every week uh, trying to sort of counteract the uh, democratic dominance of public discourse. Where did this idea come from? Was he, was he always this kind of I want to reach the people, or was it particularly the 1960s where he really felt the need to engage in these kinds of campaigns? He always believed in communication with his constituents and with the American people. Um, even in his early days as a member of the House, he made it a priority to read and to personally correspond with, or I'm sorry, to read and to personally respond to uh, his constituents and to to keep an open line of communication. Um, that came to him, I think, instinctually. And, you know, he, he believed in the truth. Um, it was his master. I think that uh, he felt that to um, obfuscate an issue to his short-term benefit would be to the long-term detriment, not only to him, but to the American people. And so this was just uh, a function of his integrity. And so by the time, you know, the 1960s come along and television is becoming uh, a more common way with which to communicate with the public, he used that tool to his advantage just the same way that he used um, more rudimentary tools to his advantage as a member of the House. But yes, that open communication, and really when you watch these, they're kind of boring, but they're not intended to be sensational. He's not trying to elicit a, an emotional reaction from people. He's just trying to keep people informed. And wow, what a distinction between what we see today. 
I should add that there's a uh, wonderful video of him uh, responding to someone who I think sent a very um, inflammatory booklet to him, complaining about the riots and whatnot. And he responded in such a calm manner that even if it's quote unquote boring, it was nevertheless very disarming. That strikes me as part of the style. Yes, very much so. I mean, he talk about a man with a strong um, conscience uh, who was humble and yet sure of himself. I think particularly beyond, you know, maybe his first term when he was getting his feet wet, uh, he was able to absorb all sorts of criticism and uh, he was a master of not taking it personally, but still taking it seriously. Speaking of something to take seriously, as uh, Dirksen is most known for bringing in the Republican votes to vote for Cloter and end the Southern filibuster of the Civil Rights Act. There are three things that I'm curious about. The first is, is that he, like many other Republicans who were pro-civil rights, but were, I guess, skittish or ambivalent about some of the, um, some of the more invasive parts of the law. Uh, and he said so. He even says so in his brief memoir, The Education of the Senator, where he talks about he's not a fan of like things like subpoena power. So I, 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 I don't, I have not found much in terms of what made him change his mind about that sort of thing. Um, and I guess the second thing is also he voted for it. He brings the he brings the he brings the law to pass. And on the other hand, he openly speaks in favor of Senator Barry Goldwater, the Republican nominee in 1964, who, while also being in favor of civil rights himself, was also was one of those people who thought that the civil rights law of 1964 went too far. So how exactly does he endorse a guy who basically says you did the wrong thing? What an interesting question. Um, and I would start by pointing out um, that I, I think to your comments, um, despite Dirksen's enthusiasm and dedication to civil rights, uh, which had existed since you know at least the early 1950s, he too had concerns about possible constitutional questions within earlier versions of the 1964 bill. Um, most specifically Title II, which dealt with um, public accommodations. Um, and it became a real sticking point for Dirksen, and it demanded that the Senate and the House leadership find a way to work really hard through those issues. Um, but they did. I think that Barry Goldwater's relationship to civil rights initiatives could be described in a similar way, in that um, both he and Dirksen were longtime supporters of civil rights, but they share this understanding that the devil is in the details when it comes to federal lawmaking, both in terms of the language and in terms of the process. Um, and they also had to balance out certain ideals with their, you know, longstanding conservative philosophies about what aspects of an issue could only be resolved by the federal government and which aspects of those issues needed to be resolved at um, the state level. But, you know, <laughs> Goldwater's vote against cloture and essentially the civil rights bill were certainly an embarrassment for the Republican Party, which had been given this incredible opportunity to distinguish itself on the issue. And 
I mean, I can only imagine the true level of Dirksen's frustration and disappointment over the conundrum that Goldwater's posture had placed him and the Republican Party in. But, you know, it's also worth noting that Dirksen tended to trust that each member of Congress listened to their own conscience on matters, and he required himself to respect that of others. And in return, he expected that same respect to be paid to him by his colleagues. Also, by now, there was just no practical way of backtracking away from Goldwater becoming the nominee, right? And so as a leader, Dirksen's preferred method of maneuvering in a political headwind was to find a way to go with it instead of against it. And I think that's a great example of the complicated nature of politics. It's always this delicate balance between principality and practicality, even when performed with honest intentions. And, uh, you know, leaders just always bear the brunt of that conundrum, don't they? Yes, they Yes, they do. Um, so if I may ask as a final question to this genuinely fascinating conversation, what would you say, without bringing any like specific political issues, what would you say is the, is the legacy of a leader like Everett Dirksen uh, for politics today in a way that you know people can understand? Well, I appreciate you posing this question, and I appreciate you giving me the heads up that it might be one that you ask, because um, as with most public figures, some of the best rhetoric about Dirksen is found in the many various high-profile eulogies that were written for him in the wake of his death in 1969. Um, and there are several that I could have turned to to answer this question, but I chose to pull an excerpt from President Nixon's remarks because I think they really speak very specifically to this inquiry. And Nixon's speechwriter did an excellent job of putting into words what I uh, have come to know and understand about Dirksen in my own study of his career. It says, Everett Dirksen was a politician in the finest sense of that much abused word. If he were here, I think he might put it this way. A politician knows that more important than the bill that is proposed is the law that is passed. A politician knows that his friends are not always his allies and that his adversaries are not his enemies. A politician knows how to make the process of democracy work and loves the intricate workings of the democratic system. A politician knows not only how to count votes, but how to make his vote count. A politician knows that his words are his weapons, but that his word is his bond. Politician knows that only if he leaves room for discussion and room for concession, he can gain room for maneuver. A politician knows that the best way to be a winner, and this is my favorite part, is to make the other side feel it does not have to be a loser. A politician knows both the name of the game and the rules of the game, and he seeks his ends through the time-honored democratic means. As he could persuade, he could be persuaded. His respect for other points of view lent weight to his own point of view. He was not afraid to change his position if he were persuaded that he had been wrong. That tolerance and sympathy were elements of his character, and that character gained him the affection and esteem of millions of his American followers. 
And, you know, hearing those words spoken in 1969 about an influential public leader while living the reality of 2023 and um, the public leaders of today, I think is commentary enough about the difference between these two political cultures that are about 60 years apart from each other. Very well said. And it, it is quite amazing to see someone like Richard Nixon be so incredibly kind to someone else. Tiffany White, yes. thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. It has been a pleasure. And I, for one, uh, have learned a lot. And I hope our listeners will too. Thank you so much.